first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the phone? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, guys. Hey, Max. I'm in, I find myself in the position that Aaron's sometimes in. I genuinely don't know who the guest is this week. Well, you will be pleased to know that my guest this week is Susan Burton. All right. Susan is a longtime editor at This American Life. She is uh, responsible for many of your favorite This American Life stories. Uh, One of them is an all-time favorite of mine, Unaccompanied Minors, which actually got turned in to a movie. Susan's also a writer. A couple years ago, she wrote a memoir called Empty that is about her decades-long suffering from an eating disorder, uh, an eating disorder that she kept secret from virtually everyone in her life until the book was published. And we talked about the process of revealing that secret so publicly. And we also talked about how that process connects to her latest project, which is a five-part podcast called The Retrievals. It's from Serial and the New York Times. And Susan has a really good, really clear summary of the show in this interview. So I'll just say it's about an IVF clinic at Yale University where a nurse was uh, stealing fentanyl. She was taking it herself and replacing it with saline solution, which was then given to scores of patients who were undergoing this incredibly painful procedure. Uh, It went on for months, and the show is about the experience of these patients. It's about their pain, but it's also about the systemic failures at the clinic, how it was allowed to go on for so long. It's about the nurse and what was going on in her life. And it's about how you adjudicate something like that. It's a really complicated story and how she chose to tell it was really fascinating. So I asked her about it. We are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Max with Susan Burton. Hi, Susan. Hi, Max. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so excited to be talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. 
I feel like um, there are many points at which you could have come on this show and we would have started with your early days in radio. Uh, there's another period a couple years ago where we would have started with your book. But uh, today, since we are here in this moment, I think we should start with The Retrievals, your podcast. Is that okay with you? I'd love to. And I'm going to say one thing before we start, which is that I'm very self-conscious as an interviewee. I feel like when somebody interviews me about my work, they're often going to be like, am I talking to the same person who uh, made that (laughs) thing or wrote that thing? Because the person I'm talking to speaks in half sentences and seems so stiff and tense. And I I feel like there's a big discrepancy between um, who I am when I speak and who I am when I write. Right. And I'm just saying this because maybe saying it will help me have more ease as we go forward. We'll bridge yeah. the gap somehow. Yeah. Well, yeah. just so you know, you seem totally relaxed and yourself to me, but you are not alone in that experience. I find that almost every time I talk to audio people on the show, they are very uncomfortable with being on that side of the microphone. Yeah. No, I think that's true. Like just even the phrase good talker, you know, like mm-hmm. that's that's something that's so valued in this work. And I'm very aware that I'm not a, a good talker. You know? You've prejudged um, yourself as a bad talker. Right, 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 right. Well, well, I've cut my own tape, right? You start to understand your own syntax and style when you cut your own tape. And my tape isn't always easy to cut. It's not always easy to tell when a thought begins and when a thought ends. But I appreciate you um, understanding It's interesting to hear you say that because one of the things that struck me about the retrievals was how present you seemed in the tape in the interviews. I will say that, so the gap between speaking and writing has something that, um, it's something that I've grappled with for decades. And for a long time, as an interviewer, you know, I was always trying to cut myself out of the tape. And I've become more comfortable as an interviewer. I feel able to be present and authentically myself in interviews. It sometimes means that there are like five kind of rambling and chaotic sentences before <laughs> I say the two sentences, right, that you actually hear in, in the piece. But as an interviewee, and just honestly as a person in conversation with other people in various settings, I often feel there's, yeah, just a lack of control. How did you come to feel more comfortable and confident when doing the work? How did that change? I think just by doing more and more of it. I mean, a big turning point for me. um, So three years ago, a memoir I wrote called Empty was published. And the memoir was about my decades-long eating disorders. And I'd kept a lot of that secret from pretty much everyone in my life. And one of the things that happened after that book is I did a couple stories for This American Life about my own experience with eating disorders and about other people's experience with eating disorders. And there was something about having those conversations that to me felt like the first time that I felt like myself in tape. There were these very intimate and personal conversations. And for some reason, I just had a confidence in doing them. It was the first time I I had the experience of cutting my tape and not you know, just being filled with self-recrimination and I wish I were better at this and and why can't I do this? Um, So that shifted something for sure. I mean, I guess that that makes some sense. You know, my understanding of the process of publishing that book and doing those stories was that you were 
revealing something as publicly as you possibly could that you had revealed to virtually no one your entire life. I guess it makes sense that <laughs> practicing that kind of radical honesty might, um, might free you up to feel more like yourself. Yeah, I think that was absolutely true. That was one of the things that I was discovering was how having revealed this thing I had been hiding led to a kind of greater ease and openness and transparency. And maybe because I'd been so isolated, right, with these experiences and being in conversation with others who who I knew understood, you know, there was a shared language that might have been part of it, too. There's a moment in one of those pieces you did for the show where you're talking to women who had reached out to you because of the book. And then there's one long conversation in there with a woman who essentially not only had not talked about her disordered eating, but hadn't even been able to put a name to it until your book came out. And I imagine that having an experience like that, knowing that the work you have done has had that profound an impact on somebody would also be pretty freeing. Yeah. I mean, that conversation was really meaningful to me. So she didn't use her own name in the story, and I'm forgetting what I called her in the story, and I want to be careful not to use her real name. So I'm just going to call her Jenny. But so Jenny is a woman in her 60s, and one of the things I write about in Empty, I write about both anorexia and about binge eating disorder. And when I started binging, I was in my late teens. Um, this is in the early 90s. And binge eating disorder wasn't really on the radar. And I went to college and I was binging and I spent a lot of times in the stacks reading literature about eating disorders, trying to figure out what I had. And I couldn't really find a name for what I had. And this woman, Jenny, had started these behaviors much, much earlier and also didn't have a name for what she had. Anyway, I just deeply connected with her experience of knowing something was wrong, but not really knowing what it was and the power and complications that come with naming something. I can imagine how powerful that experience is with people coming to you after you put this out in the world. I was curious about what your experience was with people who you had known really well for a long time, your friends, your colleagues. What was that like in the aftermath of publishing the book? I mean, that was something that I'd been really nervous about before publishing the book. And I had a really specific fear, which was eating with other people, that they would look at me, you know, across the table and think of my history of either binging or starving. You know, something I talked about in another one of those This American Life eating disorder pieces I did is how we have this weekly story meeting at This American Life every Wednesday. Lunch is ordered in. And I'd never eaten the lunch at the story meeting. And I did that piece. It was sort of like the tail end of the pandemic. And then we came back to the office and we weren't totally having like the ordered in lunch. And then I switched over to doing the retrievals for cereal. So I wasn't going to story meeting anyway. So I've sort of never like broken the seal. I've never like eaten the lunch at the story meeting yet. And that's still something that makes me um, feel a little self-conscious, even though I'm a lot further along in my recovery than I was years ago. Hmm. Um, 
you know, I think that to, to a lot of people in my life to whom I'm close, it didn't come as a surprise that there were these issues with food. Um, I definitely always been somebody who was um, particular about food or had weird things about food. Um, one thing that I was struck by was people from high school would get in touch with me and say, I never knew that anything was wrong. And people in college would get in touch and say, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know exactly what it was. And that was sort of telling to me how, um, just how sort of I wore the pain, you know, whatever pain the eating disorder represented, just how I sort of wore that differently during those years. This might be too personal a question, and you can just tell me to move on. But you and I don't know each other super well, but we have a lot of people in common. I know a little bit about how you are in the world, which is um, like very um, nice, upbeat, and easygoing, is how <laughs> I would describe it. And I read the book before we talked, and uh, I think there's like a lot of anger in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a lot of anger. I mean, I think that... Um... So to go back to what I said at the beginning about how there's a discrepancy between the way I speak and the way I write, you know, when I write, I'm very confident that I can convey um, whatever it is I want to say, whatever idea, whatever feeling. You know, it might take me a few drafts, right? But but I know that it that it will match what I want to say. When I speak, I'm not as confident that it will match what I want to say. And maybe part of that is because of all I'm hiding, right? So if for years one thing I was hiding was the fact of my eating disorder, now I'm I'm probably hiding all kinds of things, including anger. <laughs> so I'm I'm probably. Um, I mean, I know I have much more anger than I reveal, and I don't think that's uncommon, right? Especially for women, there's been a lot of attention to that in recent years, the anger of women, how it's expressed and not expressed. Um, but I think that um, that among the things I've stifled for years are just like my true feelings. And uh I've always wanted to be close to people and to be intimate with people and have often felt that I have trouble making myself known or being known or being understood. And so the book, it felt good to be known. Of course, what I soon found out is that <laughs> writing a book and being known in that way, that's very kind of specific and limited. And there's I'm still doing the work in my real life to... Um, to try to be known in person the way I feel that I can make myself known on the page. But as far as sort of revealing um, the kind of emotional turmoil or the emotional torment or the anger, and I think to people who are very close to me, the people, let's say people in my family, I don't think that the bottled up anger came as a surprise to anyone in, in my family, really, even if the, the binging behavior did. I, I don't think the anger was so much of a surprise. Do you think you could have done the retrievals if you had not written that book? I don't think so. I don't think I would have been confident enough to take that kind of project on. I don't think I would have had just the, the interviewing skill I just described, you know, doing those pieces after Empty where I was having these very personal and intimate conversations. I think that was that was pretty critical to doing the retrievals. And I think making the series in like a process way. You know, it, it happened fast. I was making the episodes week by week. That was really challenging. And I, I probably would have fallen apart um, 
And it's not that I, you know, wouldn't have been able to complete the series, but I think my fears might have gotten the better of me. So there was a strength that I was able to draw on when it came time to make the retrievals. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It, it, it felt good. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Hear Judd Apatow talk about his experience making iconic films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Watch Hacks actress Hannah Einbinder's stand-up special. Experience films that make you laugh out loud with fan-favorite comedians like Group Therapy, where Neil Patrick Harris, Nicole Byer, Tig Notaro, and more hilariously detail their experiences with mental health. Outstanding, A Comedy Revolution, a film investigating the impact of queer comedians with Lily Tomlin, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bob the Drag Queen, and Sacramento, a lighthearted narrative comedy with Michael Sarah and Kristen Stewart, and much, much more. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Just quickly, before I ask you many, many questions about the show, can you give me like a brief synopsis? So if anyone's listening hasn't heard it yet, they at least have some framework for what we're talking about. Totally. So The Retrievals is about these events that happened at a fertility clinic affiliated with Yale University, the Yale Fertility Center. So what happened there for months, there were patients who were experiencing severe and unexpected pain during a procedure called the egg retrieval, which is what it sounds like when the eggs are retrieved from your body and either fertilized or frozen. And eventually it was discovered that the reason for this pain was that a nurse at the clinic had been stealing the fentanyl and replacing it with saline. So these patients that were supposed to get fentanyl were getting saline instead. So the series is sort of what happened? How did this feel for these patients? Why did it take months and months for somebody to notice that this was wrong? What does Yale say about all this? What were the doctors and the nurses in the room thinking? And what are the reverberations of this for all involved? One of the things I was really struck by uh, with the show was that, in a way, there isn't a central character. Mm -hmm. There isn't 
one person whose experience you're hanging it on, it's structured quite differently than most narrative podcasts that I have listened to. In a way, like the main character is pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The series opens with the sentence, the women are seeking fertility treatment for a variety of reasons. And we spend the first episode in the company of these women who come to this clinic seeking fertility treatment. And we hear from them sort of as a chorus. And as in a chorus, there are some of them, you know, sort of step to the front of the stage at, at various moments and, and have a solo. But the group of them are, the chorus of them is the character. And that was important to me for a couple reasons. I mean, one was because as soon as I started doing the interviews, I, I was just so struck by the echoes and patterns in the stories. And I wanted to replicate the experience I was having, having one conversation after another, just the volume and the pattern. I, I wanted to be able to convey that um, in the work. Um, you know, and, and then there were also some very practical things, like I interviewed 12 patients for the story, and 11 of them are plaintiffs in an ongoing lawsuit against Yale, and their lawyers were present when we spoke. And their lawyers were very the limited intervention from the lawyers, really only when it came to issues of attorney-client privilege. But I had less time with the patients than I would have in a situation where, you know, you're reporting a story and you're in touch with somebody for months and months and you can just casually call them or text them and, and set right. up times to talk. So I didn't have a ton of access. And... Um, it would have been harder, I think, to to structure a whole series around somebody you can't keep going back to and being like, "Gosh, could we talk again yeah, about one more, you know, one more time?" So, so there was there was that issue too. Also tough to structure a whole series around someone who you can only talk to when a lawyer's there. Right, exactly, and presumptuous too, like to say, "I'm going to tell your whole story," and there's a lawyer present, and you know what I mean. Like I mean, that makes it, sense to me, but it begs another question, which is, you know, if you couldn't spend that kind of time with any of them. You couldn't talk to the nurse who is at the center of the story. Yale, who operated the clinic, refused to talk. Like, there are some people who would look at those ingredients and think, this is going to be a very difficult thing to get five hours out of. <laughs> right. And maybe that's just the confidence that you're talking about. But I'm, I'm interested in what to you felt like we can make this work even though we don't have really like any of those three things. Right. It doesn't sound it doesn't sound like a great advertisement for the series when you explain it that way, but I know what you mean. I mean, I think because when you know, so just I to be clear, this, yeah. I, I think it's really great. I, I <laughs> no, want to talk to you about it. It worked. I'm just, no. I feel like my own fear is what's in that question, which is just like, if I was given those ingredients, I'd be like, I don't know. And I do think that part of the way that you pulled it off was structural. Yeah, no, I get it. And thank you. But the patients, those were the first interviews I did. And the tape was just extraordinary. I mean, just the experiences they'd had were so, um, so painful, so upsetting, so emotional, and such an indictment of Yale, of the way the medical system listens or doesn't listen to women, of the way that the pain of fertility treatment is treated or not treated. There was just so much in those interviews. And the patients themselves, I mean, they were just such an extraordinary group. You know, a number of them, I mentioned in the series, a number of them had these professions that sort of made them 
experts on their experience. For example, there was an addiction researcher. There was a professor who teaches texts on hysteria. But even aside from their professional expertise, they were vulnerable and insightful. So the tape was just fantastic. And I knew that there were a lot of layers there. And then the nurse, you know, when it... um, When it became a a serial project, I was still hopeful that the nurse would speak to me. But but I think, you know, I I always knew that the, the larger possibility was that she would not. But I think because some of the patients were trying to invent her, were, were trying to figure out who she was. And I, as the reporter of this story, I was very curious about who she was. I was also trying to invent her. And so I knew that we could tell that story. There's another structural challenge I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, so many of the shows that Serial has made that, you know, lots and lots of people have listened to, they start with some central question that at least seems like it can be answered. There is like, uh, you know, there's a mystery that is trying to be solved. And I wonder how, just from a kind of um, beat by beat perspective, you thought about how to tell a story where those kinds of questions are answered in the first minute? I mean, I think my questions about this story, I always thought of it as an emotional investigation. Like I didn't, I didn't understand, you know, when I opened Apple Podcasts, like on the first day and I saw it said true crime, like that was the first time I understood like, oh, oh, that's the genre it's in. That's the structure that, um, you know, that's some expectations that listeners might bring to this. I mean, you know, in a way, the series does have a pretty straightforward chronological construction. So it's like we're with the patients at the clinic. They have pain. They don't know why. Then they get a letter from Yale saying a nurse at the clinic was stealing um, fentanyl and replacing with saline. And then, you know, kind of the next chronological beat in the story is, okay, so now there are criminal proceedings against the nurse. And and then we're sort of following through that process. So in a way, I guess I just used chronology as a spine on which to hang all those other questions. No, that's exactly right. That's certainly how it's structured. I think the the thing that I'm asking about was what you're saying about it being an emotional investigation, mm-hmm. which feels exactly right to me. And one of the things I was thinking about listening to it and afterward is that, like, on some level, most stories are an emotional investigation, but that is subtext. And in the retrievals, it is the thing that is propelling you forward as a listener is to try and understand how it felt for everyone. Yeah. 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 I think that's true because of course, every story, of course, somebody is going to want to know how it felt. Like that's always going to be a question. Um, And I think your framing of, of, of it is accurate. Like in other stories, it might be subtext and and here it's not subtext. It's a, it's really primary. And was that like a conscious choice that you made and were working toward? Or does that experience of opening Apple Podcasts and seeing true crime on it say like you were just doing it the way that it felt like you had to do it? And um, it was only afterwards that you realized maybe you're doing something different. Yeah, no, I think that that is just how I knew to tell the story or how, you know, like those words, that was just, that's just sort of my bent. And do you think that would have been 
your bent without the experience that you had with the memoir? I mean, I, I do think so. I think I might not have been able to um, to do it as well as I wanted or to feel as, you know, as, as proud of I, as I am of the work or to feel like it, um, maybe this will sound a little pretentious somehow, but, uh, you know, a more mature work in some way. I think that... Um, that doesn't sound pretentious at all, but can you articulate what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, I mean, I'm I'm not a person who would have come to this story. My first question wouldn't have been a systems question, right? Like, it wouldn't have been, like, so what were the flaws in the Yale system that allowed this to occur? Like, when I came across a local news story about what had happened, I think probably my immediate questions were about the nurse and the patients, like, where her need for fentanyl collided with their, you know, need and longing to have children. That would have been my question, whether or not I'd written empty. Um, it, but it's it's the execution that um, that is different. And I think maybe it's just more of um, more confidence in, in my own choices. Um, you know, if I feel like empty works and sometimes I don't work in person because because empty is, is me there on the page, I, I feel like I'm there in the retrievals. The retrievals is not a personal story. I'm not really a first person narrator at all, but it really feels like my work. And I feel like a lot of ownership and I feel like I had a lot of freedom to make it. And I was able to use that freedom Um this isn't a very good answer, and I'm not really probably naming the thing that you're asking about. Um, no, no, no. I think you are. I think you exactly are. And it felt to me like it was. Um, it's interesting to hear you use the word mature because it did feel that way and confident to me the moments that you are there and the moments that you're not, you know? And that's why, I, you know, I was talking about how you were in the tape. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like a a little moment where one of the patients is talking about how she had never experienced cramps before. <laughs> and, and like, it's one of the few times where you're just like, what? <laughs> like, it just, it's sort of like, it sort of breaks a little, but it also, I found that moment really powerful because you didn't have to say much. And yet you could feel as a listener, how, how in it you were, you know? Yeah, I appreciate you saying that so much because it I I felt confident that my connection to and passion for the material would come through in the storytelling without me being super present as a Susan on a quest or or super duper present totally. in in the tape and I'm so pleased that it does come through and I did make choices right about those moments of connection with the patients. I mean some of that was um you, you, there wasn't like a a twenty minute unbroken segment in any of the episodes where it's just sort of like a two way between me and one of the patients. I wanted those moments to feel organic and necessary. Yeah, yeah, and they do. Good. What is the reaction to the show been? What has been your experience since it's been out in the world? I mean, it's been you know really um, really wonderful, right? Like it's just a ton of, of of really positive feedback, right? Which always feels really good. Except for me coming on and being like, "Why did you do this when you couldn't get any of these sources?" No, I love it. I love that you asked that. I love it. I love it. It's a real question, and and it could be a what real. A jerk. You know, no, 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 no. It is. I mean, I I have all kinds of. I mean, we can get to a point in the interview where I talk about all of the things that um that could have been better about the series and that I I would have done differently, but you. You know, I've gotten hundreds of, of emails from 
from listeners who have experiences of pain in the healthcare system. Uh, you know, I've, for example, multiple emails about C-sections where women feel everything, you know, where women feel their flesh being cut into. Oof. One woman, she felt her organs being moved around. I mean, just the, just things that are upsetting and horrifying. Um, I think that um, that it really has opened up a conversation for people, not only, you know, in terms of emailing me, the reporter, but opening up conversations in their own lives. Like when people talk to me about the story, they'll they'll often say something like, yeah, I was, you know, I was with two of my friends and, and we were all sharing stories about this. And that makes me really pleased that it's opening up conversations for people. How do you respond to emails like that and moments like that? Like, Quite literally, like as a reporter, how do you respond to them? I mean, when, um, you know, when when Empty came out, I was getting a lot of notes from people who had eating disorders. And and I I decided I was I was going to respond to everyone, you know, no matter how long it took, I was going to respond to everyone. Um, With the retrievals, there are, you know, exponentially more emails. This podcast reached a lot more people than than Empty did. And at first you know, the first couple of weeks, I, I was keeping up with the correspondence and responding to everyone. But at some point, you know, we were making episodes week by week. And I was just like, I'll, I'll stop and I'll return to responding when we finished. And now I have returned to responding. But it just it takes a while, like it's going to take me a while to get through all of the notes. You know, some of the times I'm having a very emotional response to the notes. I have a very emotional response to, for example, emails about birth trauma. Um, And I'll often, you know, I'll respond, I'll say thank you for sharing your story. And I'm sorry that this happened. And, um, you know, I don't say I don't say a lot more, but I I do um, share my reaction to the story and thank the person very much for listening and and for writing. Um, and I, I don't know that I'm necessarily offering anything insightful, but I do deeply appreciate people writing and, and I want to um, to validate and acknowledge and again, thank them for sharing with me. Do you think that's a journalist's responsibility or something that you as Susan Burton feel is the right thing to do? It feels right for me. I mean, there are people who get way more emails and DMs than I do, right? And and at some point, they have to make a decision. They simply can't respond to everyone. I still feel like I can, so I still want to. But but no, I don't. I don't think that's necessarily a, a journalist's responsibility. But it is what feels right to me here. Does the response to the show does getting all of these emails and DMs? Um, does it make you want to do more of this? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think that um, the experience of not being believed, of not being listened to, you know, whether it's about pain or anything else, I mean, that's just something that is really just such a profound experience and something that I, I really connect to. So so that alone um, is something I've drawn to. But I am thinking about what story to tell next and... Um, whether there's more to this story, right? You know, one one of the the disappointments of this story was not being able to include um, any Yale sources on on the record. Um, 
And to, you know, there's there's in in the experience, right, when patient is having pain and the patient feels like there's they're not being listened to, they're healthcare providers. And I think it would be fascinating to really be able to dive into the healthcare provider's experience is in a way that I, I wasn't able to in the retrievals. Um but yeah, but I I I'm definitely thinking about um about these experiences of pain, about um, about birth trauma, about um, women's health and storytelling, and what exactly to do next, and and it's about as unformed as as, <laughs> as what I just laid out. It'd be amazing to do a, uh, an emotional investigation into why someone didn't listen, and to all of the exactly like like what is a healthcare provider hearing? What is going through that person's head? What are they feeling? And to really be able to get inside of that. Um, I think would be j- just fascinating and and important to understand. Have you heard anything from Donna, the nurse who's at the center of the story? I haven't, and I, I keep wondering if you know if maybe I will, or or maybe I'll hear from somebody you know who's currently close to her, somebody I haven't heard from yet. But but I haven't. What would you ask her if you did? I mean, gosh, that's a really good question. What would be like if if Donna reached out? What would I say? Um, I mean, I think first of all, I would want to know um, where she is in her recovery, right? Like, I'd want to know is she um, is she using? Um, is she not using? How is she doing? Because I think that that would be an important thing to establish um, before having a conversation. But I, I think it would go. Again, back to my initial questions, like what happened and how did it feel and what does she make of it now when she reflects on this experience? You know, there's the story she told to the people in her life and to the court two years ago, but what is the story she tells about it now? How do you feel about it now? About um, about what happened at Yale or about the story I told about what happened at Yale? I don't know. Choose your own adventure. Either one. I mean, I think, um, so I'll try both. I mean, so how I feel about what happened at Yale, um, you know, I feel, um, I feel upset about what happened at Yale. And I feel angry about what happened at Yale on behalf of these people that it happened to. And I should say that not only patients, but, you know, there were people who worked at this clinic who were very, very troubled by but what happened there. And I feel for them, too. And, you know, I'm disappointed that Yale didn't make anybody available for an interview and didn't offer much of substance in response to my queries. Um as far as how I feel about the retrievals as the story of what happened at Yale, um, you know, I feel it was a wonderful experience to be able to make this story that was, you know, I, I cared so much about this material. And um, it was wonderful to work with the people I did. It was really like uh, I, I've said this a couple times to my colleagues, but there's this Amy Mann song called I've Had It. And it describes kind of this like this band is just doing a show kind of at this dive bar in New Jersey. But then they just have this magical experience where it all comes out great. And um, it was kind of that amazing like (laughs) band experience. Um, I just I just loved working on it with my colleagues. You've mentioned a couple of times since we've been talking your early days at Harper's and hearing Ira Glass on the radio and finding your way to 
This American Life, thinking about like getting out of college, deciding that, you know, this is what you wanted to be doing. How do you, um, what do you think that person would think of where you're at? I mean, I, I think she would be thrilled. I think she would be so happy. You know, I, I think she might, um, be disappointed <laughs> that it took, so I was 20 years old when I was an intern at Harper's and I'm about to turn 50. So, um, I think that that 20 year old self might be a little surprised that it took me so long to do the work that I wanted to do. And, and I don't mean to, my 50 year old self, um, doesn't like to use that language. I think we all find, you know, it, it takes some of us longer than others. And, um, the 20-year-old self would be really happy, but also kind of like, well, wait, what? There were like three decades and uh, and what was going on? And uh, maybe maybe you should have gone to therapy sooner. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. Well, it's good that um, a byproduct of the decades and the therapy is that the nearly 50-year-old version is like, eh, it happens when it happens. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And that's, that's, that's really, I really do feel that. Well, part of the reason I asked that question is because you've been able to do such a, a wide array of work. You are an editor at This American Life. You have produced many of the show's most iconic stories. You've also written for a whole bunch of places. You've written a book. And I'm curious about how you think about that balance of like roles and mediums and how you um, choose which way to go. I mean, I think um, it's a big question and something I think a lot about, you know, and, and there have been times over the years where I felt like, you know, maybe I should have chosen writing or audio, but there's this short story collection by Miley Malloy, who's a writer I love, and it's called Both Ways is the Only Way I Want It. Um, and, and I think that that's actually a line um, from a poem, and, and I can't remember exactly whose line right now. But that's sort of how I felt, is both ways is the only way I want it. I've always wanted to do both things. But the retrievals, right, doing those interviews and hearing that chorus and hearing those echoes and hearing the emotion in that tape, like there was never a moment when I was working on that story where I was like, should I be writing this as like a long magazine piece instead? No, this was the shape the material wanted to take. I think that... Um, I think for me, sometimes it's it's maybe the tension has been in my own identity. You know, am I more um, of a writer or a radio person? And and I think that that writer, right, is at the heart of who I am, at the essence of who I am. And even even the way I started this interview, right, what was like the first thing I said to you? <laughs> right. Like, I'm, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to speak that well. And I'm, I'm really more comfortable on the page. Um, so so in that way, um, sometimes radio feels like a challenge for me and kind of an odd fit. But at the same time, there's something I'm trying to work out, right, by by doing work this way. Hearing you talk about that makes me think a little bit about your Terry Gross profile. Uh-huh, yeah. Which um, I remember when it came out, I was so thrilled that, like, she was getting the, like, uh, the homage she deserved, you know? Yeah. And now it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I, it never occurred to me, like, what that would have sounded like in audio. Oh, my God. Well, that would be a terrifying—I mean, right, like, the whole thing of, like, interviewing Terry is, is you know, inter interviewing the master. Um, if anybody had listened to the sound of me interviewing Terry, I would have just been so em embarrassed. Um, well, as someone who's had the experience of 
interviewing her, it is in fact deeply embarrassing. Oh my gosh! I now I'm going to have to go look for your interview. Not 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 to hear you being embarrassed, but I'm I would be fascinated to hear um, to hear your conversation. Um, yeah, I mean that was that was that was really a wonderful experience, and um, you know the ideas that I was exploring in that piece, ideas about. Um, the kind of intimacy that that one can have in an interview versus the kind of intimacy one can have in life, the the revelation of a secret, you know, obviously those are themes that are, are really central to to who I am and, and to my work. Yeah, it seemed like you were trying to work something out in that piece, and it is that question that you're talking about, which is a little bit connected to the thing you were saying at the beginning, which is about um, the different versions of ourselves. You wrote it in October 2015, and it it ends with you and Terry going on a walk around the block and you telling her a secret. Mm-hmm. And I just reread it, like, right before you and I hopped in to this. Yeah. After having read your book, after having listened to the show, and I have to tell you, it made me wonder... If the secret you told her was the secret that, like, five years later you told the world. Um, yes. On that walk, the secret I told Terry was um, was about the binge eating. Um, I mean, my now my heart is racing even a little right now. Having said it, it's funny. It's like I um, – it almost feels like a betrayal in a way, even though it was my secret, right? It's almost like a – is it betraying Terry by telling the secret that I told her? It's not. Um, she interviewed me about Empty for Fresh Air. And afterwards, you know, we, we corresponded briefly. And she mentioned that she'd she'd thought about, you know, bringing up that moment. And she decided not to out of respect to me or out of wanting to keep that private, which I really appreciated, right, and says so much about who she is. But, yeah, that was a really um, powerful moment for me as a journalist and as a person. And, you know, that piece was about, like, you're an interviewer, right? And I remember one of the interviewees was talking about going on Fresh Air and said to me that the fantasy was about, like, just having the conversation, you know, just just that experience of, of intimacy. And that clearly was something that I really related to. And um, that I found myself searching for in a complicated way during the process of writing that profile when I was supposed to be the journalist writing about Terry. I was not Terry's interview subject, but yet I found myself inhabiting that that role. Well, um, as an interviewer, I now feel like a real schmuck for bringing it up. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm so glad you brought it up. It's really interesting to talk about. (laughs) Uh, Okay. All right. I'm not sure. Now I I feel bad bringing it up. Don't feel bad. There's nothing that you should feel bad about so far in this interview. There's also zero things that you should feel bad about in this interview. The caveat at the beginning was unnecessary. It was (laughs) lovely to talk to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, my gosh. I love talking to you. Thank you so much for all of your thoughtful questions, for, like, just, it's felt really good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Susan Peterson. Thanks to her. Thanks to Megan Valley, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Vox. 
with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to Susan Burton. Her book is called Empty. Her show is called The Retrievals. We'll see you next week.